Happy Wednesday, dear friends. Here we are in May already and a tad warmer today. Brr, though, May Day and uh, for people who still celebrate those things. And yesterday, pretty chilly, uh, though the dogs like it, right? This is Jill. Welcome to K9360. Glad you're here with me, as always, on Wednesdays. Talking dog stuff and yowzer. Doggy's been in the uh, news this week. I don't know about your social media feeds, but mine have been overflowing with uh, an article that came out last week, appeared in Science Magazine, journal, actually, academic journal, and... um, it got picked up everywhere. I heard, I saw it on well, the Washington Post, the New York Times. There was an article in Forbes. Uh, Scott Simon talked about it on Saturday on uh, Weekend Edition. And so I thought we better talk about it here too. So in case you missed it, essentially it's an article that says, in defiance of everything you ever learned in your sophomore biology class, genetics play no role in canine behavior. Well, kind of that's what it said. That was part of the challenge. So I'm going to start in terms of a little bit of a summary with a brilliant blog post. uh, Patrick Burns over at the Terrier Man uh, blog put up and, and Terrier Man tells us that things can be true and they can also be a lie. For example, he says, you are mostly banana and mostly a non-human life form. This is true because you share 60% of your DNA with a banana and because your body has more microbe cells in it than purely human ones. But does that make you a banana or a fruit fly? It does not. And so we come down to the latest bit of nonsense spun by the press release science that breed dog breed and dog behavior have only a tenuous relationship to each other. The terrier man says more than once, it's nonsense. But he wants to start, as I do too, with the study. And here's a direct quote. Here's a paragraph. Researchers from the United States reported that only 9% of behavioral variations in dogs are linked with the canine breed. This is based on a data sample of 18,385 pet dogs where almost 50% were purebred as per the paper published in the journal Science. And that paper uh, that came out on Friday, April 29th. Back to the terrier man who says, yeah, righto. And what was the denominator again? 9% of what exactly? You would think that the study would list that clearly but you would be wrong. Not only does the study say that all dog breeds are the same or that they track the same as mutts, but what does the study say? Quite a lot, but less than it would like to, and none of it, none of it is new. What it basically says is what Cesar Milan and other dog people and trainers have been saying for years. It's an animal first, a dog second, a breed third, and then an individual. 
When we relate to our dogs, says the terrier man, especially when trying to correct an unwanted behavior or an issue, it's important to think of them first as an animal, then as a species dog, then as a breed, shepherd, beagle, husky, and last and least important is their name. To have a happy, balanced dog is to respect these qualities about them. So, to put a fine point on it, says the terrier man, this study study in big danger quotes is knocking down a straw man has anyone ever said that all dogs within a breed are the same terrier man says not that i know or can find by the same token if you think the general personality and code of a jack russell terrier is the same as a greyhound or a beagle you simply have not spent too much time around dogs but wait he says there's more you want to really laugh here it is the very same issue of Science Magazine that today says your dog's breed doesn't determine, determine its personality also says, same issue, dog breeds really do have distinct personalities and they're rooted in DNA. Hmm. Huh. Go figure. Terrier Man's observation that press release science is really a heck of a thing. <laughs> so I had to borrow from him to set this up. Um, let's take it a little farther. Let's uh, consider it in a slightly different way. See if this makes sense to you. Because this little, quote, scientific, unquote, study has made its way around various media outlets, as I said before. And it's garnered a lot of attention despite its design flaws, um, it relies on owner surveys, and that is not science in any way. And it has claims derived from false premises, one of which is that humans have only been selectively breeding dogs for about 160 years, which is simply wrong. Um, wiser folks than I have taken the time to explicate the flaws in the study, and they've done it elsewhere. So if you haven't already given in to your own confirmation bias, you can find those challenges to the experimental design and the science itself just by doing a simple Google search. Instead, I think for um, our own purposes, let's test the argument using something called the believing and doubting game, which was developed by a, a rhetorician and writing theorist named Peter Elbow. I first learned of it when he published it back in 1986. Elbow's notion of believing and doubting says, what are the implications for action if all of this is true? And then inversely, what are the implications for action if none of this is true? So let's start with the first one. What are the implications for action if everything in this article is true? If the, quote, research proves that genetics and breeding practices have no effect on behavior, then there will be no need to send off for those DNA profiles on your mixed breed dogs. And we will all refrain from overgeneralizing about dog behavior because it comes back as 9% Danish diving terrier or whatever, since it's all meaningless. It's not predictive. There will be no more obsessing about a dog's breed or genetic origins, and the humane societies, along with rescue groups, won't try to identify dogs as mixed this or mixed that. They'll just describe their inventory in general terms. Ralph is a medium-sized brown dog with a white ruff, prick ears, and a long fluffy tail. 
And then the whole landscape of identification, selection, rearing, training, and ownership for dogs will change forever for the better. Right? Right? What are the implications for action if none of this is true? If that's the case, then it remains, as it always has, that what kind of dog you get is far less significant in terms of your future success finding birds in the field, getting the livestock penned up, or living in harmony with human beings than who you get your dog from. And that's because the most important question you can ask that breeder is, what are you selecting for? So let's talk about what that means. Because I get questions all the time. They go something like this. Hey, Jill, we looked at many, many breeds on the AKC website before falling in love with the pug or the Italian greyhound or the English cocker spaniel. So when we saw an ad on the classifieds or Craigslist or wherever people look these days, for puppies, we answered it and now we have Ellie. But she doesn't really look or act very much like the dog we read about on the AKC webpage, and we don't know why. Doesn't she know she's a pug? Here's how we might respond to that question. What was the dog's breeder selecting for? Because when you get on that AKC webpage, what you're reading is called a breed standard. The breed standard is a verbal description of the ideal specimen of the breed. Doesn't matter what it is. That's the ideal specimen, the perfect dog. Well, sexual reproduction and genetics are a thing, so the perfect dog doesn't exist. But the goal of having a breed standard is to have something that should serve as a template, as a metric, or a goal for selecting which dogs you're going to use in your breeding program with the idea that you want to breed to improve the breed, to go towards that better English Cocker or English Shepherd or whatever, right? So if your dog's breeder doesn't know that there's such a thing as a breed standard or is breeding solely to make money and sell puppies to unsuspecting public, it's quite likely that all the things that make all the things that make the dog what he is, which is called breed type, are not being selected for. Think about the subtle differences between an English Springer Spaniel and an English Cocker Spaniel, or even an English Cocker Spaniel and an American Cocker Spaniel. Those subtle distinctions have to be things that the breed, the breeder can identify and breed towards. And when they're not being selected for, you don't get breed type. Purebred doesn't equal well-bred. So what you get is a dog who doesn't fit the mold, who doesn't personify the qualities that make him what he is. A dog who lacks breed type. So let's use Border Collies as an example. This, my thinking on this is informed by the brilliant and lost too soon Don McCaig. But it takes no more than four generations 
of breeding border collies for backyard breeders to extinguish, extinguish working ability at a practical level. Almost all the pups from working parents will work livestock. But if only one in eight or ten will work livestock, you have practically extinguished the gene. And throwbacks may or may not be breed true. And what about breeding working dogs for the show ring, for the beauty contest part of the show ring? If you breed your working border collie to a show-winning border collie, Don McCaig says he doesn't think you'd have many working pups in the second generation. And it's not because show breeders deliberately breed out the genes for wide outruns, power, or balance on sheep. It is because they are selecting for a different purpose. They are breeding to win in the show ring and to produce unfunctioning, docile house pets. So what goes first is the Border Collie's keenness, its obsession with livestock, its desperate need to work. That keenness and working desire has no value in the show ring, and it may even have a disvalue, and it makes for very poor house pets. So why wouldn't a show breeder breed a placid dog to a placid dog? And there goes the sheepdog motor. He may have all the rest of his genes intact, but if the dog doesn't want to work livestock more than it wants to please you, more than it wants a cookie from your hand, more than it wants to survive, it cannot be trained to work livestock. This is probably the most important thing, this next thing, that I ever heard Donald say or write. It took 400 years of practical breeding to produce a working sheepdog. It can be destroyed in a decade. Now apply this process to some of the more popular breeds that you read and know about. Labrador Retrievers, Shetland Sheepdogs, Schnauzers, South-Coated Wheat and Terriers. When the very characteristics that make the dog what he is are not being selected for because the breeder either doesn't know or doesn't care such as when your neighbor breeds Fido to Fluffy to make some extra money to send the kids to camp or sell them on Craigslist or, or whatever, it's a little like prying the nameplate off the Lexus and slapping it on a Kia. You're not getting what you wanted or what you thought you paid for. And what happens in the creation of these cutesy named designer mixed breeds, Labradoodles, Puggles, etc., that's a subject we can say for another day or talk to or talk about in just a minute. But, you know, there's that oceanfront property for sale out in western Nebraska if you're really interested. Here's the thing we need to know. This is the problem with the research study that's getting so much um, press. The canine genome is extremely diverse. And unless someone is breeding towards a definitive breed standard, they will invariably wind up breeding away from it. Conversely, if they're not breeding to avoid undesirable traits, they wind up breeding towards them. As far as the time frame of the establishment of a breed, we need to recognize that by definition, a dog breed becomes a breed when the individuals breed true and their offspring breed true. It has very, 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 very little to do with appearance and the abilities of individual dogs and more to do with reproducibility. How long that takes depends on many things, but even after fixing the breed's traits, 
Breeders must still continue to refine and select or the breed will drift back. It'll drift away. Science already knows that when dogs are allowed to breed randomly, after several generations, most individuals will be medium-sized brown dogs with curly tails, prick ears, and a medium double coat. That phenomenon is called atavism. So like anything else, when breeders try to take on the job of breeding to a standard, they have a responsibility to try to avoid the pitfalls of a narrowing gene pool. But that's because every right and privilege carries with it responsibility. We've all got problems when people don't live up to their responsibilities and bigger problems when those who don't realize what those responsibilities are or don't care. Right? So, Science Magazine. Goodness. I guess it sells magazines. And what? No press? Bad press is better than no press? (laughs) Uh, All right. So, What about those doodle dogs and designer mixed breeds? Here's the least you need to know. The promise of a no-shud coat. Yeah, that's pretty much, let's borrow a phrase from uh, Terrier Man. Nonsense. The doodles have a nappy coat that grows continuously like a poodle coat and sheds continuously like Labrador Golden Retriever coat. And that can translate into a lot of daily maintenance or frequent and expensive professional grooming. You've all seen the consequences, right? Goes around on social media, that nasty, stinky, matted mess of a dog that has to be really, 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 um, it's expensive. And then there are the ears, those dogs' ears can get kind of goopy and yucky. Um, I had one colleague who said that doodles are the full employment act for professional groomers and not since the old English sheepdog fad of the 1970s has grooming income been so assured. Um, Homes with golden retriever poodle crosses harbor herds of dust buffaloes that impress me and I have owned Belgian Shepherds for 20 some years and I had rough collies before that and that's hair that's a lot of hair their personalities are all over the board because when you take breeds as diverse as poodles and the retrievers and you try to generalize about temperament it's pretty hard mix them together with very little thought about the possibilities for outcome it's hard it's really hard to predict what's going to come out of there some dogs behavior tends to be complicated by the fact that owners kind of by the marketing hype or are influenced by their friends or their neighbors and they somehow believe that doodles will come out of the box as a finished product. Um, but like any mixed breed dog, you see some really good ones essentially by accident and I've seen a few of those too over the years. But probably greater than 90% of the doodle breeders and some of the other designer mix. Huggle, Cavapoo, whatever, are just profiteers who don't know anything about genetics and don't care. They don't screen their buyers and they have no idea what they're producing in terms of health, temperament, or morphology because, as we said, they don't care and they don't check. Sometimes they don't even know what the mixed breeds they give clever marketing tags to will look like in six months. We see pictures of puppies on websites. 
And I think that's my, what we're selling is puppies, not the adult dogs that they will shortly become. And I'm sympathetic with the project of thoughtful crossbreeding. There are functional terminal crosses like lurchers and guide dog retriever crosses. Um, Canine Companions for Independence does some of that. So does Bonnie Bergen um, out in California. New breed development is a long-term project. But the hybrid fad is not about thoughtful crossing. It's not a project. It's not looking for function. And it's not anyone's concerted long-term project to stabilize a new breed. This is not von Stefanitz creating the German Shepherd. This is not Herr Doberman. Not by a long shot. It's about people who are indifferent to dogs making most of their money off people who are ignorant of them. Uh, I would include the folks who produce fad purebred dogs in the same category. Things like mini Aussie, teacup poodle, teacup Yorkie, and so on. You may have seen things, um, I think we talked about this a couple of programs ago having to do with the dangers of the um, narrow gene pools for brachycephalic dogs, right? So brachycephalic is your dog with the smooshy face, pug, French bulldog, traditional bulldog, Pekingese, um, even to a certain extent boxers, but I think the biggest problem is in those toy dogs, right? Cavalier, and how the squishier the face, the more people like it, um, almost as if a little bit is good, more is better. And then when you're altering the um, actual morphology, the, the structure of the dog's skull, uh, you influence other features of the dog's basic anatomy, such as his capacity to breathe, um, and swallow and uh, Paul McGreevy did a really interesting study it's probably 20 years old by now 10 at least I heard him presented in Vienna in 2010 where he showed I think MRI video of how the more brachycephalic the dog is in other words the more squishy their face is the more the shape of their skull is altered and it's influencing how their brain is positioned inside that skull. And the, the shift in the position of the brain is having significant and long-term consequences for the dog neurologically, right? Because that brain stem that leads into that spinal column and goes all the way down um, is, is influenced by the shift in the position of the brain inside that increasingly misshapen skull. And um, the consequences are not good, right? And I think I've spoken here before too about syringomalia, the problem we see in mostly in Cavalier King Charles Spaniels where each time the heart beats, a small bit of the brain bulges out through an opening at the base of the skull and puts pressure on cranial nerves 
And what the dog will do is appear to be scratching. And so a lot of folks first at first think the problem is dermatological, right? He must have skin irritation. And the veterinarian looks and looks and looks and there's nothing on the skin. But if you watch those dogs in slow motion, I've seen the video, that hind foot never touches the dog's skin. The dog is just sort of scratching in the air the way that our dogs do when we find a tickly spot on their tummy, right? And it's a consequence of, again, that portion of the dog's brain bulging out of the back of the skull and putting pressure on nerve endings in that region. This is why Norway has banned the breeding of these dogs, right? Because somewhere you got to stop this even if it's just temporary and hit the reset button so that we can improve um, what we're doing with and to and on behalf of these little guys who who are pretty dependent on us, right? To make sure that they feel good in their own physical body and they feel good in their own skin. So genetics is responsible for a lot of stuff, including temperament. Just to bring us back around as we slide to the end of our time together here. Um, <laughs> there's this guy named Gregor Mendel. Anyway, you'll remember from biology class in high school, we all have a nodding acquaintance with genetics and peas and colored flowers and Mendelian genetics, right? Little bit. Those laws of genetics haven't changed and we still don't really understand everything there is to understand I think but uh, genetics it's like gravity operating on us all the time whether we know it or not and there's no no escaping that right with our dogs and even with ourselves so don't read everything you don't believe everything you read in science isn't it terrible we even have to say that goodness this is our our challenge in this historical moment who is telling us good stuff that we can trust we try to do that here best we can right um that's why you hang out with us here on kzum and uh come back next week because there's more where this came from and uh besides we're glad when you're with us and supporting us and giving back because we like to give back to you. Stransky's coming up pretty soon. Make sure you get on the KZUM website if you didn't get the email. Check out the lineup. It's pretty amazing this summer. I'm excited. Excited to see it and excited for those amazing evenings out there in the park with friends and neighbors and dogs too. All right, you guys, that's it for me today. Have a great week. Uh, come around and hang out with us again next week here on K9360 on KZUM and KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. Take care. <laughs>